Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, listener. Did you know you could advertise your product or service on this show? It's part of the Agora Podcast Network, and they specialize in producing intelligent, independent podcasts. Cumulatively, the network has just under 1 million downloads a month, so that's a lot of downloads. Um, you can contact us if you've got a product or a service you would like to hawk by going onto their website, which is the agorapodcastnetwork.com. Plug over. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to author and historian David Petrusha about the intersection of baseball and the presidency. Safari is the debut studio album by French electronic music duo Air. It was released in 1998. It's also acclaimed by critics as Air's most renowned release. This is the album's opening track, La Femme Argent.
David, what is the most quintessentially American? Is it the presidency, the institution of the presidency, or is it baseball? <laughs> the presidency is a great shorthand way to know history. Because if you start looking at its indigestible four-year chunks or eight-year chunks, or in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, a bit longer, but he's the great exception. And so you can, you can manage what you're looking at in terms of the ebb and flow and the events of what's going on in America. But baseball is certainly a, a big part of it. And I went to a baseball banquet the other night, and it was quite moving to me and to see how connected the sport is to what people care about and just the way about people live. And I think we're going to see an explosion again in baseball's popularity with the dip, the big dip in football's popularity, the controversy, and also the great World Series that just occurred. It's it's a great game, and it's sort of what they say uh, about a lot of other institutions that it survives all the all the nincompoops that that run it because it's so good. Let's do another analogy between uh, the great game of baseball and the presidency. Which president is most synonymous with uh, supporting a specific team in baseball? Ah, you don't see much of that in the 19th century. Taft is the mm -hmm. fellow who throws out the first ball. Herbert Hoover was a great baseball fan, as was Harry Truman. Um, a lot of the more famous presidents really aren't. The fellow who has the most direct connection with the game is really not that big a fan, and that's Ronald Reagan, who was a play-by-play -play announcer for the minor leagues when he was a very young man before he even goes out to Hollywood. George Bush, actually, no. I, I I stand corrected by myself. George W. Bush <laughs> has the most direct connection to the game, being the former owner of the Texas Rangers. I knew a fellow, or actually a couple of fellows. One was a tire salesman from Windsor, Ontario, and another was a childhood mm -hmm. friend of mine who both wandered in to the president's box, the president being the president of the Texas Rangers when W was in charge. And they should have been probably thrown out or, or arrested even. And instead, W met them and was incredibly gracious to them. I think that shows a, a sort of politeness and generosity of spirit. Uh, also, Warren Harding uh, was involved in the minor league baseball team in, in Marion, Ohio, back before he became president of the United States. Uh, so, you know, they, they come and go as to, as to how big a fan they are. David, with President Donald Trump breaking centuries-old conventions and norms with the institution of the presidency, this must be a great time to be a presidential historian looking at the various parallels of the past. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> it's a mystifying time, I think, for everyone. And, you know, technology changes and it's a question of who's going to take advantage of it first or best or worst or however one views it. So... Theodore Roosevelt goes over the heads of a lot of people to journalists. He cultivates them very, very well. Franklin Roosevelt has the fireside chats, which we all know. Jack Kennedy is the master of 
press conferences. He handles them himself. He's marvelous at them. They are broadcast live. So he's a master of that genre. Um, and then we move on to social media or anti-social media, as it often is now. And Donald Trump is, well, no, Barack Obama with Facebook eight years ago. He jumps in. That works for him. Donald Trump, Twitter works for him. Sometimes doesn't. But uh, but so far, he's won and everyone else is lost. So who are we to judge? Run us through your four election books. Um, you've done 1920, 1932, 1948 and 1960. What can we learn specifically from those from those elections? And what if, if there is a common link? What are what is that common link between all those elections? One thing I find out over and over again is if we're looking for a fault line which is going to extend ideologically or for the parties from 2017 all the way back to the Garden of Eden politically, it's not going to exist. And you're going to find that people who you think are going to be on one side of an issue are going to be on another side of an issue. So in 1920, which was the first of those books I did, you found that it was Republicans and not Democrats who are supporting women's suffrage more. Or you might think mm-hmm. it's going to be the more reactionary or conservative elements who are going to be supporting prohibition. And you find that in many cases it's the progressives or the people who are opposing the progressive Woodrow Wilson in the League of Nations or who are the isolationists, so to speak, as they're going to be called later, are not necessarily the conservatives like a William Howard Taft is going to actually support the League of Nations but it's the progressives often in the far west the midwest like the William Boras the La Follette people like that who are in fact the sort of America first or in 1960 you see Kennedy is really to the right of Nixon in regarding facing the communist threat and what to do about Cuba Cuba as he would say looking at the focus which is now shone onto i'm mixing my metaphor wildly here focus which has been shone on the focus which has been put on the american presidency at the moment or at least specifically this american presidency would you say it's happy days for a a presidential historian like yourself i i sense a lead-in to something (laughs) (laughs) happy days are here again was the theme song of franklin d roosevelt happy days weren't quite here again during his presidency when you when you really analyze it but at least things weren't as morose and hopeless as they had been under the previous administration of herbert hoover you know songs and popular culture can get get associated with a presidency i think uh, i can't recall the tunes but uh, oh what wasn't it the rolling stone songs for some reason you can't always get what you want wasn't that the jo- donald trump uh-huh. theme song during his rallies you know, I, I don't think that was. Um, I seem to remember he at the start he was using something, and goodness, I'm, I might have to cut this bit out. He was using something, and whoever the band was that did it says, "Don't use it," because they were diehard. You, you often see that whenever a Republican uses a pop song or a rock song, the the artists in, in responsible for that song say, "Cease and desist. We want no part of you." <laughs> 
Um, one song which um, people on the right absolutely do trumpet as being all about uh, steadfast American ideals is Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, which actually, when you look, listen to the lyrics, is actually very much kind of, um, not necessarily anti-American, but it talks about um, the mistakes um, of uh, kind of um, um, some uh, of kind of American ideals, which it kind of seems to be lost in the delivery by many people actually on the right. Yes, as you're as you're talking though, I started to roll over in my brain sort of campaign theme songs. And uh, I remember Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American was very popular among Republicans. The uh, the Macarena. Does anyone remember the Macarena being the Bill Clinton oh. song? I don't think so. And and Al Gore, <laughs> you know, doing the Macarena with Tipper on the platform. Okay. And don't worry, be happy. The big song for George H. W. Bush, which he could use a few bars of right about now and during the 1960 campaign uh frank sinatra did a version of uh high hopes uh which he translated into uh you know pro jack kennedy uh lyrics uh so campaign music has probably been around since oh franklin pierce or beyond
So Happy Days Are Here Again. That wasn't actually written for uh, FDR's 1932 campaign, was it? It was a song which was popular just before? It was It was in the popular uh, repertoire at that point. And even four years before that, the or before that, the sidewalks of New York was the campaign theme for Al Smith, the governor of New York. But at the convention, the Democratic convention in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt wanted as his theme, because he was a nautical guy, he had been undersecretary of the Navy, he wanted anchors away. And the organist at that convention, who was missing a couple fingers, by the way, uh, started playing this <laughs> dirge-like version of anchors away. It was terrible. It was like bringing everyone down man and FDR's advisors said stop it play something else play anything else and somebody said make it happy days are here again and so like many of the famous things of history you see they come about by accident and and that's how it 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 went and that was the big deal for Franklin Roosevelt and even even the title of a book on that 1932 campaign of his. Now, we need to move on somewhat 28 years later to look at one presidential campaign which is captured with the modern glare of television. Um, It's the election of 1960. And I know that you have your book about 1960, but I want you to compare and contrast for us, David, your book between Theodore White's kind of seminal Pulitzer Prize classic. You've done a book about 1960. There's a classic book about that election called The Making of a President, 1960. How does your book differ from that? From the that short book? answer is my book's better, which may sound, <laughs> which may sound obnoxious, but, but really... I had the advantage of 50 years of papers and reminiscences and memoirs, Mm -hmm. which Theodore Roosevelt did, or Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore White did not have the advantage of. And really what he did with his book and all his subsequent campaign books was really not so much history because it was written too close, but extended journalism. Okay, I mean, they are seminal works. They're very valuable. They're very good, but they are extended journalism. And anyone who comes along later is going to have advantages that white and people who do books like that do not have. And it's quite amazing now with this book from Donna Brazil coming out that you see a book like that coming out so soon. And so unvarnished, most people are, are, are guarded and they don't want to burn their bridges right away. And those books are quite rare. Uh, so you usually have to wait a long time before that, that sort of uh, backroom tell-all thing comes out, and which can really spice up a subsequent campaign history. And what did you learn? What have you gleaned from that election uh, that maybe Theodore White didn't actually have in his kind of minute by minute at the time recounting? Well, well, he cannot see what's going to happen in the future. He can't glean the importance of the machinations regarding Barry Goldwater and Richard Nixon and Nelson Rockefeller, Eugene McCarthy coming along a few years later and derailing Lyndon Johnson or even how important Lyndon Johnson is to American history. Um, So 
he will emphasize certain things which really are are not of great importance because hindsight is is 2020 and i'm able to you know have that uh 50 60 years of, of hindsight now which he did not have so just to start to wrap up i know that you you said you've just finished your your draft on theodore roosevelt i was kind of find him kind of a fascinating figure because in lots of ways he seems to be the bridge between the old distant somewhat patrician view of the presidency where president was just kind of like a stakeholder but whereas with him you get a president who very much is a hands-on president he seemed to love the camera and and actually he was a muscular president in that he actually got stuff done tell us about how you went about researching and writing uh, your, your book sir your summary of what theodore roosevelt's importance is was very correct he is the person who changes the focus of the presidency from the old chief executive in other words the person who merely executes the policy which is enunciated put into law by the congress and somebody who acts on his own he's still constrained in many ways for example in 1904 he doesn't go out and campaign it's just not done and there are there are boundaries which even theodore roosevelt will respect but my book is about the final years of his life the world war one years where he's struggling to get america into the war or at last and he gets his war. He's on the verge of reclaiming power. He jostles for the nomination in 1916. It is his to have in 1920, but it's a story of triumph and tragedy. He gets his war. His four sons go into the war. He wants to, but he's rejected by Woodrow Wilson, which is a sound decision on Wilson's part. But Two of his sons are very badly wounded in the war, and his youngest son, Quentin, is killed on Bastille Day 1918 in France. And he, Theodore Roosevelt, does not live to that 1920 election. He's sort of like Moses leading his people into the promised land, but he's not able to get there himself. Mr. Petrusha, I'm presuming that all of your great works can be found on Amazon or any halfway decent bookshop on Main Street in America. Would I be correct in that summation, sir? That is correct. And just remind us again, um, what are your your full titles and the, the name of your book, which you have coming out soon? And when will it be out? The four titles are 1920, 1960, 1948, and 1932. The next book will be called TR's Last War, and it will be out, God willing, in September 2018. So there's a bit of waiting and a bit of editing to do in the meantime. David Petrusha, thank you for coming on to Friday 15 and sharing your love of not only of baseball, but of American presidential elections and its presidents. Thank you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
The John Spencer Blues Explosion is an American alternative rock duo who were formed in 1991. Bell Bottoms opens the album and features a stirring string section arranged by Kurt Hoffman. Venus as a Boy was written by Bjork and was produced by Nellie Hooper. It was released as the second single from her 1993 album debut. The song was inspired by a boy who saw everything from the view of beauty.
hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget, you can follow the show's progress on Facebook by simply typing in Friday 15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me from at Royfield, R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15 iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me where I'm Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.